Let's take our Bibles and rather than Luke 18, turn over to Romans chapter 7 with me. Romans chapter 7 in your Bibles this morning. I want to finish a message we started last Sunday morning on Luke chapter 18. There's a particular truth that we ended on but did not have the opportunity to, to develop and deal with. As we looked at the story that Jesus Christ told in Luke chapter 18, the story that Jesus Christ told was the story of a, a troubled young seeker. He was young, he was intelligent, he was sincere, he was, sincere, he was committed, uh, he, he had a lot going for him. And he came to Jesus Christ after living a sincere and passionate life of trying to attain goodness. And he came to Jesus Christ because he was troubled in his heart, because he had not been able to attain that which he longed for. And he came to Jesus Christ believing that Jesus had the ability to help him to acquire what he was missing. And he came to Jesus, he poured out his heart to Jesus, and he asked Jesus, what one thing do I yet lack? I have done so good at trying to be good. I have endeavored to keep all of the law. And yet there's something missing in my life. He was sincere. He was committed to his religion of Judaism. He had conscientiously attempted to fulfill the requirements of his religion. And yet he recognized that the, at the, in the depths of his heart there was something missing. And he came to Jesus Christ and said, what must I do to have everlasting life? To be able to live with God forever. To have a life without end, but not just this life that we're living now without end, but to have life that God has without end. To, to be with God, to live in God's kingdom, to have the life of God that would last forever. And he knew he didn't have that kind of a relationship with God, in spite of his religious devotion and his effort to attain goodness. And he came to Jesus, what one thing do I yet lack? To be able to have eternal life. And so last week as we introduced this story, we focused on the, the troubled seeker and the motivated soul winner. A genuinely conscientious, desirous man who lived a good life and yet knew something was missing. And Jesus Christ, the greatest Soul winner of all time. How will Jesus Christ handle this seeker? How will Jesus answer his question? How will Jesus deal with this man's soul as he came to Jesus Christ seeking? He asked, Jesus asked a question and then Jesus made a statement. We, we looked at those last week. Jesus asked the question, why do you call me good? Because the man had come to Jesus and addressed Jesus in a way that, that in Jewish literature, no one has ever found any time that someone would go to a teacher, to a rabbi, 
and addressed them this way. He came to Jesus and he called Jesus good master. And people would often approach a rabbi or a teacher and call them teacher or rabbi or master, but good teacher. Because goodness was recognized as belonging only to God. And so they would never call a teacher good rabbi or good teacher or good master. And yet that's how the man came to Jesus. So Jesus asked him a question. Jesus says, why do you call me good? Why, why did you just call me good master? You realize there's none good but one, and that is God. The only one who's ever attained goodness is God. I want you to understand, we didn't comment on this last week, but I want you to understand the issue is goodness. And Jesus said, no one's good except God. He's the standard of goodness. He's the only one who is good. Why did you call me good? Are you recognizing that I'm God? Have you come to me because I'm the standard to which you must attain? We understand that goodness is the issue. No one goes to heaven unless they're good. And Jesus said, nobody's good except God. Goodness is the issue. Now, you can compare yourself to somebody else and you can say, I'm a good person because you're comparing yourself to someone who is worse than you. And in comparison to so-and-so, I'm good. But God never does that. God is the standard. Jesus is the standard. There's none good but one, and that is God. Jesus, as God, is the standard of what it means to be good. You can go to heaven if you're good. Which means you can go to heaven if you're just like God. If you've attained his level of goodness. So Jesus asked him a question because it focused the reality of salvation on the issue of goodness. But goodness is only defined by God as the standard of what it means to be good. And of course, God took that standard of goodness and he put it into the law that Israel and that this young man tried diligently to obey. And that law is summarized into what we call the Ten Commandments that God gave to Moses on top of Mount Sinai. And God wrote it with his finger in stone and gave to Israel ten commandments. And God said, if you can keep these commandments... You can be with me forever. They said, we'll do it. He said, try. And from that day to this, the law of God has encapsulated the standard of what it means to be good. It's the standard to which we measure ourselves to determine if we're good. And if we are good, we can have eternal life. And so Jesus asked the question to cement in the conversation that the issue is goodness and then Jesus made a statement. It was an emphatic statement. And we ended the message last week with the statement that Jesus made. Jesus said, keep the law. The man said, I've done a pretty good job of that from my youth up. Jesus said, how about the tenth one? How about the tenth one? Jesus didn't question him on the other nine. He took it. At face value. He listed five of the ten. The man said, I've kept those. Jesus didn't question him about those five. He took his word for it. Not that he agreed with him, but he didn't argue with him. He just, okay, how about the tenth one? 
Thou shalt not covet. I'll tell you what you're going to need to do. You're going to need to sell everything you got. Liquidate all you got. Give it all away. Find people less fortunate than you. And give it all away. And then once you are depleted of all resources, come and follow me. And the Bible says the man turned and he walked away sorrowful because he was exceeding rich. And not only did he possess riches, but riches possessed him. He wanted God, but he didn't want God at that price. He wanted God, but not at the cost of what was most important to him in life. And that was the things, it was the stuff that he owned and the money that he possessed. He wanted God. He came to Jesus because he sincerely, genuinely wanted God. But when Jesus made a statement about what it would cost him, he didn't want God that much. And he walked away sorrowful. Now, here's where we ended last week. The fact that Jesus made this statement. And I put in your little worksheet last week, Romans chapter number 7. You understand that the rest of the New Testament, the rest of the New Testament is a theological explanation of what happened during the life of Jesus Christ. And so when we look at these stories in the life of Jesus Christ, there is theology behind those stories. Last week we looked at the story. And normally this is not a Sunday morning type of message. This is normally like something I do on a Sunday night. And I have done this on Sunday night with Romans chapter 7. But this particular story in the life of Jesus is so foundational to what the gospel is all about. It's so foundational to the theology of eternal life that I, I felt that we just needed to take one more Sunday before we go any further with the story. And we need to take just a few moments to look at what's behind that statement. I, I said last week, and it, it was probably a statement that you may not have even agreed with. You may have heard me say it and thought, I don't know about that. I said, Jesus Christ made a statement and his purpose was to kill this man. His purpose was to destroy this man. And you may have thought, well, that's pretty strong language to put in the, in the words in the, in the mouth of Jesus Christ. And yet, I believe the, the statement is true. I believe that Jesus Christ really did say what he said because he wanted to destroy this man. And I want you to see why I said that from Romans chapter number 7. You see, Jesus pointed the troubled seeker to the law, to the Ten Commandments. He quoted five of the Ten Commandments. And then when the man said he kept all those from his youth up, Jesus Christ brought up the Tenth Commandment. Thou shalt not covet to see if he could put that on for size and see how that fit. And the guy knew that he could never do what Jesus said. That money had his heart. As much as he loved God, he loved money more. As much as he wanted God, he wanted his stuff more than he wanted God. 
If it came down to whether you're going to have your car and your house and your bank account or God, it was, it was troubling to him. He went away sorrowful. He didn't want to give up God. But there was no way he was going to give up his stuff in order to have God. Why did Jesus point him to the Ten Commandments? Well, hold your place there in Romans 7. Turn back a couple of pages to Romans 3. I want you to see two verses in Romans 3, and then we'll look at some verses in Romans 7. In Romans 3, verse number 19, the Bible answers the question I just asked. Why did Jesus point him to the Ten Commandments, to the law? Romans 3, 9 says, Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them that are under the law. Could I paraphrase that? The Ten Commandments was given for this purpose. The Ten Commandments, the law, summarizing the Ten Commandments, is given to people who are called upon to obey them. They're under that law. They're required to keep those commandments. For what purpose? So that I can keep those Ten Commandments and earn heaven? So I can keep those Ten Commandments and earn a place at God's family dinner table for all of eternity? No. Verse 19 says, He gave us those Ten Commandments that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, by keeping the Ten Commandments, shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. We know it in the medical world. We know that you'll never go to the doctor until you know you have something wrong. Very few people go for for routine checkups just to find out. Most wait until they know something's wrong and then they go to the doctor and get some medicine to fix what's wrong. No one goes to God to be saved from their sin until they know they've got sin. And so God gave Ten Commandments and said, if you keep these Ten Commandments, you can go to heaven. Not because God thought anyone could do that. But because man thinks he can do that. This young man that came to Jesus thought he could do that. He was earning a place in heaven. From his youth up, he had diligently kept his religious devotion. But something was gnawing on the inside. And he said, Jesus, what do I lack? I might have eternal life. And Jesus pointed him to the law. Why? Because the law... Is what God gave to produce guilt. And only guilty people ask for forgiveness. Only those who know their guilt ask God to forgive them for the sin that created the guilt in their heart. So Jesus, out of great and deep love for this young man knowing that this religious, devoted, sincere, humble young man has spent a lifetime trying to earn his way into the favor of God, had done a spectacular job at being good in the eyes of man, but he could not attain the level of goodness that God would say, you're good. Because the standard God uses for goodness is himself. And this man, as high as he may have registered on the goodness scale on earth, he did not reach the standard of goodness 
that was acceptable to God. But he didn't know it. And so Jesus pointed him to the law out of love, out of compassion, to kill him, to destroy him, so that Jesus could resurrect him to new life through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Until he's dead, he cannot be resurrected into new life. And so Jesus pointed him to the law. Now, in Romans chapter 7, this, what was said in chapter 3 about the law, the Ten Commandments, being the tool God uses to be able to bring a person to guilt and despair. To bring a person to an awareness of guiltiness that they are not good in God's eyes. That led to a question. Well, what's wrong with the law? Maybe we need to rewrite the law. You know, some are doing that today. They're rewriting the law to make it attainable. You know, if you can't attain the standard, rewrite the standard. Make it something people can reach. That's a good solution. If you can't reach the standard, lower it. If you can't make the grade to make an A, lower the standard so everyone can make A's. Not a problem. Lower the standard. There's something wrong with the law. If as hard as this man tried to attain goodness, that he could earn his way to heaven and he couldn't do it, what's wrong with the law? And so, Romans chapter 7, verse number 7, what should we say then? Is the law sin? Is the problem with the law? God forbid. And then Paul, who God used to pin these words, Paul began to speak of his own experience that parallels very closely with the experience of the young man in the story of Jesus Christ. Here in Romans 7, we find the theology behind Jesus' use of the Tenth Commandment. I want you to notice, number one, the work of the law. The work of the law. What did the law do? What was its work? And you'll see a one, two, and three. Number one, through the law, sin killed Paul. Paul said, I had not known sin, but by the law. For I had not known lust, except the law said, thou shalt not covet. Now, interesting, that's the tenth commandment. That's the very same commandment that Jesus used on the man in Luke's, Luke 18. It just so happens, ironically, that both of these individuals, this young man in Jesus' life in Luke 18, and the apostle Paul in his life later, both of them were brought to their knee. One was brought, the, the one man was brought to sorrow, and Paul was brought to his knees over the, the use of the same commandment, thou shalt not covet. Now, for those of you, uh, those of you who, who um, are into terminology and words in your Bible study, I want you to notice in verse number 7, when he says, except, uh, when he says, for I had not known lust, notice the word lust, except the law said thou shalt not covet, notice the word covet, but sin taken occasion by the commandment wrought in me all manner of concupiscence. See the word concupiscence. Lust, covet, and concupiscence are all English translations of the same word in the original language. But they're different parts of speech. And so they're different English words are used because of the change in parts of speech and grammar. But they're all the same word. In other words, these are not three concepts. This is one concept. Let me read it in a way that would draw the concepts together. Paul said... I had not known lust, except the fact that the law said, Thou shalt not lust, but sin, taken occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of lust. 
The Apostle Paul said, I did not understand what sin was until I was confronted with the Ten Commandments. But I got to that Tenth Commandment. And when I looked at that Tenth Commandment, that commandment got me. That commandment hit me square between the eyes. I had not known lust until I saw the law say, Thou shalt not lust. And when I saw the law say, Thou shalt not lust, sin used that occasion to stir up my desire to lust. When I saw God say, Don't do that, that stirred up my desire to want to do that. Well, you know what that's like. When the kid doesn't know about the cookie jar, the kid doesn't want the cookie. You get the cookie jar down, you open the cookie jar up, you show them what's inside, and put it back, put the lid on, say, now don't get a cookie. Well, you just awaken that person's conscience to their desire. For, they didn't know they wanted a cookie. Until you said, don't eat this cookie. This one, in this jar, don't eat this cookie. From that point on, that kid could think of nothing else but that cookie jar. And getting their hand in that cookie jar. And getting one of those cookies. And Paul said, I did not know and understand this concept of, of covetousness until I read in the law, thou shalt not covet. And as soon as I saw God say, thou shalt not covet, that stirred up within me a desire that every day of my life, I wanted it. I wanted it. I wanted it. And so Paul said in verse number 8, in verse number 9, I was alive without the law once. Before I knew what the law said, I was alive. Before I knew the cookie jar was there, I was happy and I didn't want any cookies and I was good to go. I was alive without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment which was ordained to life, God said to Israel on Mount Sinai, you keep these ten commandments, you can have life. The commandment that was ordained to life, I found to be to death. For sin, taken occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and it slew me. When I said last week that Jesus Christ made a statement in order to kill him, that's what I was talking about. Jesus made a statement. You must keep, you, you want to attain goodness by law keeping? You tell me you've kept all of these laws from your youth up? You're trying to earn heaven by how good you are? Then keep the Tenth Commandment. Give up everything you've got. Give it all away. And the man said, I, I love my stuff. I want my stuff. I will not give up my stuff. If I have to give up my stuff to have God, I don't want to, but I have to give up God. Because I love my stuff. What Jesus wanted him to do is to fall on his face and say, oh, what a wicked heart I've got. I am a sinner who loves stuff. And die. Jesus wanted the law to slay him. Because Jesus can't resurrect a living person. He resurrects dead people. And the law must kill him 
in order for the gospel of Jesus Christ to resurrect him and give him a new birth and a new life that is symbolized and pictured in baptism when someone portrays in a little drama that they're dead and buried. Jesus can't raise them to life until they're dead. Jesus can't save them until they're dead. Jesus can't give them grace until the law kills them. And so when the seekers said, what must I do to have eternal life? Jesus didn't say, nod your head at the right time and repeat these words after me. And now you're a Christian. We'll baptize you on Sunday. Everything's great. Because the man wasn't dead yet. He still saw himself as being a good man. But something wasn't quite right yet. What one thing do I lack so that I can have this thing of eternal life conquered and I can be good enough to go to heaven? And Jesus Christ can't give that man grace because he's not dead yet. You see, the work of the law is, was to kill Paul. And so in verse number 11 and 12, you see number 2, the law effectively multiplies guilt. That's what we read in chapter 3, verse 19 and 20. You see it here in verse number 12. He said the law is holy, the commandment is holy, just, and good. Was then that which is good made death unto me, God forbid, but sin that it might appear sin, working death in me by that which is good, that sin by the commandment might become exceeding sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. You see, Paul knew that his guilt for being a sinner began to multiply and become exceeding sinful once he understood his failure to keep the law of God. Charles Adam Spurgeon said this about the power of the law in this matter of salvation. He said, the law stirs the mud at the bottom of the pool. He's picturing a pool of water where the dirt has all settled under the bottom and the water looks relatively clear. He said, but when you introduce the Ten Commandments, the law stirs the mud at the bottom of the pool and proves how foul the waters really are. The law compels the man to see that sin swells in him. That it is a powerful tyrant over his nature. All this is with a view to his cure. God be thanked when the law so works as to take off the sinner from all confidence in himself. To make the leper confess that he is incurable is going a great way toward compelling him to go to that divine Savior who alone can heal him. This is the whole end of the law toward men whom God will save. The law effectively multiplies guilt. Why, in God's dear name, are evangelical preachers being taught in colleges across our land, never preach against sin. Never make someone feel guilty. Why did the famous preacher on the West Coast take the Ten Commandments and say, don't ever preach them as negatives. Don't preach thou shalt not steal, preach thou shalt work. Don't preach thou shalt not lie, preach thou shalt tell the truth. When I listened to his homiletical material back, uh, back in the, uh, I think it was in the uh, early 90s, 
when I was developing a homiletics course for Fairfax Baptist Temple Missions Academy, and I got Rick Warren's homiletics course that he used to teach his young preacher boys how to preach, and I heard him say, don't ever make people feel guilty. Don't ever preach on sin. Don't ever preach on the law of God as negatives. Turn them around and make them positives. You are gutting the gospel. You are taking the one tool God gave us to hold out to an unsaved world and make them feel so guilty to make them despair of the hell they're heading to so they'll come to Jesus for a solution. And you're gutting the gospel of its power. But that's what's being done in our culture, in our easy-going, feel-good Christianity that rejects the Word of God and replaces it with the philosophies of man. Paul said, the law killed me. It made my sin exceeding sinful. It stirred up the mud in my life and made me aware of just how dirty I was. And that's what Jesus was doing with this young man. Jesus wasn't going to have him just repeat a prayer and say, that made you a Christian. This man thinks he's almost good enough. Jesus must let the law kill him so that Jesus can resurrect him. And until the law kills him, he cannot be resurrected. The law multiplies guilt. And number three, the law left Paul conscious of his slavery. Verse number 14, I read it a moment ago. For we know that the law is spiritual. Here is his conclusion. I am carnal, sold under sin. I am a slave to my sin nature. I tr he gave the illustration. He says, I try to do good. I know, what's, I know what's right to do. And I try to do what's right. And I end up doing what's wrong. I know what's wrong to do, so I try not to do it anymore. And I, I end up doing it. He said, I am carnal, sold to my sin nature. And I can't fix my problem. It's not a matter of Jesus as the one who's going to tweak his life, make adjustment here or there. No, he must die so Jesus can resurrect him. This is not a renovation. This is tear the building down and build a new one. This is not make a few tweaks and adjustments in the way you think. This has come to the point that you know you're helpless. And turn to the only hope you could ever have. And that is a God who raises the dead. And so that's the work of the law. That's what the law does. The second thing there is the, the state of the convicted sinner. Verse 15 to 24. I just kind of alluded to that. And then number three, the final thing is the salvation of the convicted sinner who finally comes to Jesus. I want you to look at how he wraps it up. Verse number 23. He says, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind. Bringing me into captivity to the law of sin. There's a war. It's a, it's a war between, uh, I know what's right to do, but, 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 but I desire to do what's wrong. And, and there's a battle, and a person's convicted, and they're weighing heaven and hell. They're weighing sin and forgiveness. They're weighing out in their heart and their minds what it is that life is all about. A war is going on within them. It's the conviction of the Holy Spirit drawing someone away from their sin into the arms of Jesus Christ. It's the Holy Spirit working to convince someone. It's not worth it. 
to have your sin and go to hell. It's the war of sin and the Spirit of God over the soul of a man. And it comes to a culmination in verse number 24. He said, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Who can deliver me from this convicting power of the Spirit of God over the sinfulness of my life? There's only one hope. And that's Jesus Christ. Jesus is trying to get this man to the point that he knows he has a need. When the man walks away sorrowful, he's very rich. I wonder if we'll see that guy in heaven one day. I wonder if he chewed on that for a few months. I wonder if every time he got in his chariot, he thought about what this chariot's costing him. Heaven. I wonder if every time he did anything he, he, with his wealth, he got to thinking about the, the, his love for wealth. I wonder if the Spirit of God used the Tenth Commandment in his life the way he used it in Paul's life. To kill him. To slay him. To destroy him. To cause him to recognize, I'm not... Almost good enough. I'm not even on the chart yet. I am a slave to my sin. And at that point, somebody gave him the gospel and said, you can be born again. I wonder if we'll see him one day in heaven, as we'll see the Apostle Paul. Two very similar men. One who met Jesus before his crucifixion. One who met Jesus on the Damascus Road after his resurrection. Two similar men, both zealous of their religion. Two similar men, both doing everything they could to earn their way into heaven. Two men, both of whom God used the Tenth Commandment to confront them with their sinfulness. One we know got saved. The one we don't know yet. We'll not know till we get to heaven. Whether he genuinely trusted Jesus Christ. I want you to understand the theology behind the story. Every story we study on Sunday morning from the life of Jesus Christ is expounded upon theologically elsewhere in the New Testament. We just usually don't take the time to look at the theological underpinnings of the stories. I just try to give you the story, tell you what the importance of the story is what it means theologically without going into all of the nitty-gritty of it but this one i thought this story so foundational to the essence of what the gospel is and the way jesus used the law in its intended purpose to achieve the guiltiness and the death the spiritual death of this man with the desire to draw him to a savior who could wash his sin away. This has a lot to say to you and I. Those of us who are saved. It has a lot to say to us about the importance of pointing people towards sin in the process of seeking to win them to Christ. The reality of sin. The Ten Commandments as the tool God incorporated to bring people to guiltiness. It's a very important theology to understand in the way we reach the world with the gospel of Christ. And if you're here today and you've never been saved, it's very important for you to understand 
that your hope of heaven has nothing to do with your goodness. It has everything to do with the slaying of your thought that you could ever be good enough. So that in desperation, you'll turn to the mercy of God who sent Jesus to die on the cross in your place and pay for your sin debt so that his death could pay the ransom for your soul.